It's a very intimate yeah. document. <laughs> it's a very exactly. All she does is, is fetch. I think there's no doubt that it really influenced Yiddish literature. First of all, because Yiddish writers were looking for a history, and to have found this text that was so old. The grandmother memoir thing is uh, is a definite thing. The the Yiddish for for made up stories or bullshit, you know, that started off as bovamaisa became a bovamaisa, you know, a story that your grandmother tells. Welcome to Yiddish Book Club. My name is Erica Klein. Today's episode, to me, is all about the Jewish mom. What else can be said about Jewish moms that hasn't already been said? They complain because they care. On the podcast today, Gluckle of Hamlin, a truly one-of-a-kind book. Uh, like It's the Yiddish memoirs of a mother to a dozen children, the holder of dozens upon dozens of grudges, a shrewd businesswoman, and a voracious reader. In 1689, Gluckle, the would-be author of one of the earliest pieces of Yiddish literature, spent the long, dark evenings following the death of her beloved husband, sitting alone and writing. She addressed this writing directly to her living children, and the book was published uh, much later, in another century, by her family. It's a mixture of folktales retold, which is fiction, and family history, nonfiction, or memoirs. You got your ghost stories, you got advice for new moms, practical business tips, and then some good old-fashioned yarns. Not to mention, really what's incredible, is a first-hand account of Jewish life in Western Europe in the 17th and 18th centuries. So the podcast where we talk about Yiddish literature is myself and then Michael Wex, Faith Jones, and Shane Baker. Now, if you haven't heard the show before, this is how it works. My name is Eric Klein. I know nothing about Yiddish literature other than what my friends teach me. But Michael Wex, Faith Jones, and Shane Baker, these guys, they're the experts. They're the Yiddish translators. And uh, I hope you enjoy the podcast. We're online at YiddishBookClub.com. You can subscribe to the podcast anywhere where you get them. But that's enough of that stuff. Let's just jump right in and talk about this incredible book. So is this a book? Is this book famous? Has, has everyone read this book already but me? It depends. It depends what you mean by famous. Yeah, we're kind of the wrong people to ask about this. <laughs> but you yeah. guys, you guys have all read it before. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I, actually, I, I read. I, it, I read it in English a number of years ago, and I read uh, uh, some of it. In Yiddish this time, I didn't get through all of it. I understand, though, that uh, uh, you know she dies. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna, uh, to I'm gonna, chain. I'm gonna. Spoiler alert: she's yeah. dead. Although that's not yeah. actually included in the book. It's true. Uh, it's true. It, it is more or less an autobiography that she wrote in manuscript and was then redacted. Uh, by one of her sons, who was a rabbi, uh, and and wasn't it first published in German? So yes, interesting no. publication history. No, it was published in Yiddish, um, in Old Yiddish. In the 1890s, yeah, correct. In 1896, uh, 
but of course the the document itself dates from the 1680s to the 1720s. So, well, she died in 1724. Right. So there was quite a lag before it actually got published because it was a family document. Yeah, and it was passed down from generation to generation. So it's the kind of thing that wasn't unknown in an absolute sense. But until a certain point, there were very few, if any, people who weren't related to her in some way or another uh, that knew of the document and might have read it. And she had some pretty well-known descendants, uh, including uh, uh, Bertha Pappenheim. Bertha Pappenheim. Bertha Pappenheim is the one I can think of. Yeah. Uh, the famous uh, German Jewish feminist and patient of Freud. Huh. Right. Uh, and there were a couple of others, but the first thing was uh, when it was published in the late 1890s, as Faith said. Uh, Kaufman, David Kaufman, the uh, the, ed- the person who edited it, actually put out what you call a diplomatic edition of the old Yiddish text. So really, if you didn't know old Yiddish, it wasn't going to be a huge help to you. Uh, and then subsequently, it was, I mean, fairly in fairly quick order, it was translated into German and also into English. Uh and caught on pretty quickly. Yeah. Because it's, there are very few autobiographies uh, of any Jews from that time. And this is certainly the only one written by a woman. Yeah. And, and that time being uh, the, the late 17th century, the early 18th century. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, seventeen. Yeah, mid to late seventeenth and into the early eighteenth century. Sixteen eighty something or other to the, to seventeen oh oh. Yeah. Well, she. Yeah. She. Uh, yeah. Sixteen forty five or sixteen forty six. She was born, and she lived to seventeen twenty four. So, so she lived, you know, a fairly long life. So I've I've never uh, read a book like this before. I've never felt so close to someone uh, who lived so long ago, because it's so um, it I mean it starts off extremely uh, even ludicrously uh, stilted, I suppose, or distant. You know, not very intimate. But at, at a certain point, she lets a lot of her guard down, and mm-hmm. she really is herself in a way that I've never felt so connected to uh, someone who lived so long ago. Because she's it's complaining. A, it's a very intimate yeah. document. <laughs> it's a very intimate Exactly. All she does is, is fetch. You know, there, there's stuff in there. Not like kids today who would kick you in the ass and throw you out. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I don't think she invented the motif, but she may well have been the first person to put it down in writing in Yiddish. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, I, it really struck me how much of the book is concerned with getting her many, many children married off. Yeah. That was her well, number one concern. Marrying them off and also her obsession with what she paid for absolutely every <laughs> item she mentions. Uh, <laughs> unbelievable. It's unparalleled, uh, to the best of my knowledge, in world literature. 
up to that point. It's one of the first, you know, it's unfortunate that it wasn't published like immediately after it was written because I think it's really one of the first, if not the first, I, you know, I'm not 100% sure here, but certainly among the earliest uh, written works to really focus on what Karl Marx called the cash nexus. Huh. And the only thing like it uh, from that time, which interestingly came out, uh, was published in English two years before she died, uh, before Glickel died, is Defoe's Mall Flanders. Oh. Which similarly, despite the fact that Mall Flanders is a prostitute and Glickel is about as opposite from a prostitute as you can get <laughs> without actually being a nun, uh, they're both totally obsessed with this. Mm. And I guess, you know, uh, you remember from high school and university, the middle class was always rising, uh, no matter what era you were talking about. But here we can see the emergence, uh, partly of, you know, this kind of what we would think of as a fairly modern middle class. You know, these merchants yeah. who are, you know, reasonably well-educated because they have to be. Uh, in order to deal with all the different types of people they need to deal with and understand the nature of their merchandise. Uh, much, again, you know, similar to Mall Flanders, you know, making their way through this tax thing where Jews and, I guess, certain types of, uh, you know, Chris Jews, Christian artisans, and the lowlife and criminals of both Jewish and Christian society at the time in Europe seemed to be the only people who had any social mobility, who had any even notion of social mobility. Like where you could end up with more money at your death than you started with at your birth and basically in another social class. Yeah, and that's, that's certainly what's um, the only thing on her mind the entire time she's writing is is she is she rising or falling and is are her kids rising or falling mm -hmm. it's, she's obsessed with it it's wonderful like it's, yeah and even where education comes into it i mean a lot of the stuff around particularly around secular education it's about preparing them for business that's yeah. that's the purpose well, totally. of it there's yeah. no other there's no learning for its own sake no, these are not the people that sat all day in, you know, in the study house in this madrish. Yeah. Uh, these guys were out there, you know, getting themselves killed on, on highways and, and stuff like that. But, you know, they're, they're uh, not primarily scholars. On the other hand, you know, uh, I guess nothing changes much more than one of her sons became, uh, you know, rabbis. Did, because, of course, they came from, they came from uh, an economic, socioeconomic background where they could afford to study for a number of years. Wasn't, wasn't the kid who failed at business, didn't he turn, become a rabbi? <laughs> the one that she Which goes one? off. The one that she goes for like nine or ten pages talking about. What a heart attack he gave Well, her. then he dies. at. The, uh, well, he like fails at about 300 things and then dies yeah. at the Lieb. age of 24. Lieb. Lieb. Uh, Lieb. He, he moves to Berlin. He's 18 years old. He insists on getting married to, to a Berliner. 
Right, right. He moves to Berlin, and uh, she assumes that his uh, new father-in-law is going to uh, keep an eye out on him and make sure he understands how, how running a shop works. And then she discovers neck a year later. Oh right, yeah. That he's he ran just, the thing yeah, to the ground. Yeah, he basically bank. Yeah, he bankrupts the business with his MBA. Uh, big shock. That uh, guy turns into a rabbi. I thought at some point. You maybe, could be right. Maybe not. There's so many children. Yeah. I lost. Yeah, thirteen I, children. I gotta say, twelve I began children. To lose. Uh, I think it was twelve, wasn't it? There's there are a tremendous number of children, and I did not attempt to keep track of them. Yeah, they're kind of hard to tell apart after a while. Right. Uh, but uh, no, because I thought, you know, where the book really, it's, you know, especially the first chapter is just, you know, a very long and kind of dull homily. Uh, it really gets going. I thought around the fifth chapter when her husband. Oh, I sick, loved book two. Uh, book two was my favorite. I, I loved all that stuff. I loved that whole homily. You know, she's got that long story about um, about the the guy, the guy about these um, you know Jews who get what happens? They get cast to sea or something like that. And oh, yeah. one of them ends up taping. What what exactly happens in that story? One of them ends up um, the man ends up married to a um, savage. A savage princess and covered in hair. Yeah. And she's hairy and black and she has to, and he has to, you know, basically he has to perform for her. Um, Reluctantly marries her. Yeah. um, Because he doesn't want to get killed by her father. Who's, you know, the chieftain of some sort. And there's this, I mean, it's a long story. It probably goes on 20 pages. Yeah. Doesn't he say that they never he never actually slept with her and stuff? No, no, they um, have a kid. No, no, no. It's that, when, that, oh wait, that's the uh, that's the one with the woman. Yeah, right. That's that, when I, women when women get captured by pirates. I was thinking they managed to retain their virtue by never actually sleeping with whoever right. captures them. Yeah, and then it doesn't matter. I thought of you, X, when I read that part because I know that that's oh, yeah. Uh, because yeah, she she uses the power of a riddle. To keep from having to sleep with her pirate husband, who's kidnapped her for the for the purpose of uh, uh, keeping her as his his sea wife, yeah. but somehow because of her inner virtue, which sort of just shines out from her, Did, somehow he is convinced to leave her chase. But now she didn't make that up, right? She read that in a book and then just writes it down for her for her kids to enjoy or for her to well, enjoy. Well, that's an interesting process. question, Eric. Well, that's an interesting question about her sources. I mean, some of her stories, scholars have been able to trace where they come from. And we know that there were storybook sources for them. And some of them they have not. So I don't know about that particular story mm-hmm. or either of those stories we just mentioned. I don't know if they are among the stories that people have traced which story well, she came seemed, out of? She seems to have been a demon reader of the kinds of storybooks that circulated around at the time. And in some cases, I mean, there's, you know, a lot of stuff hasn't survived from them, but I, there are indications that she may well have been literate in German hmm. oh. as well as Yiddish. Because uh-huh. there's, you know, that one really long story uh, near the, it's uh, towards closer to the end of the book, 
the, basically Amnon and Tamar and Absalom, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, from the Bible, except with different names. And she does not recognize it as a biblical story. Well, she can't read the Bible. That's clear. Uh, no, but she could have read a Teichchumash. She could read a Teichchumash, but she couldn't read Hebrew. Uh, but, you know, I mean, she does bring other stuff, like Midrashic stuff, you know, that I guess, you know, she out brings- of these storybooks and out of things like Tzenarena. And, you know, there were these collections in Yiddish. Uh, but like I said, some of the stuff, if she would have got a story like that, like the, you know, uh, oh, Absalom, my son, my son, you would think somebody would recognize this. Uh, somebody as religious, as pious as she was, and she clearly doesn't, which suggests to me that she may well be have got something like that from a non-Jewish source. Mm. I haven't traced, you know, uh, like, you know, the 1602 Maisa book that was published in Basel, which is a very large, well, very large, a pretty large collection of three different kinds of folk tales. So there are folk tales or tales in there, and it's divided that way, tales based on the Bible, those based on rabbinic literature, you know, the Medrash and stuff, and then some folk tales that anybody could have told that didn't have, as far as the author was concerned, uh, you know, any particular ethnic uh, identity. They were just, you know, everybody knows this story or that story. Jews know it, non-Jews know it. It might be in there, you know, something like that. But I think somebody would have pointed that out pretty fast uh, if it was. Shane, you were going to say something? I got to say it so long ago. I beg your pardon. I I heard Shane uh, tried to talk for a moment. Uh, then. Uh, I think I think Wex just basically answered it. I was okay. curious about uh, some of the sources of the stories. As far as the Hebrew, she would know or wouldn't know. I don't know. Uh, uh, I read it in the uh, in the Mustaverk version, so yeah. you know it's cleaned up. Uh, I really have no way to to get through the old Yiddish type uh, publications. It drives me bonkers. Uh, But, you know, she's got Hebrew tags and then they're followed with the Yiddish. Is that typical of her writing or is that? that, Well, we don't, uh, one of the the big questions. Or is that uh, uh, our editor at work there? uh, Well, well, this was a big question. Is she, you know, we don't have an autograph manuscript. We don't have her copy, as far as I'm aware, but rather the copy that was transcribed by her son. Right. Uh, who was, of course, a, you know, a rabbi. So whether all of these Hebrew tags would have been in Hebrew uh, or whether he had put them in along with the Yiddish version, uh, you know, in what he had, we, we don't know. And it's, you know, it's one of those questions you can argue it either way uh, and be pretty convincing. It seems to me that the way she wrote is indicative that what she read were storybooks and not yeah. and not the Bible. Like the way she writes, she from, produces. From ones, she would have picked up a lot of these Hebrew tags. Oh, really? But what's interesting is, well, it's like if you look in a Teich Chumash or even... 
uh, of course, Mincha, you know, the kind of uh, prayer books that were done for women that had the regular liturgy. And then, you know, with a translation, the way you would today get one with an English translation. And you look at these things sometimes and you wonder, why are they bothering? Because except for things like and and bat, they just keep the Hebrew the same as it is and throw in a Yiddish auxiliary verb. Uh, so it's like, oh, wait, you understand this? Why can't you understand the original? Uh, this has always puzzled me. But what's interesting is she doesn't make mistakes. And I assume that that at least must have been cleaned up by her son. Mm-hmm. No, it's like somebody who knows a lot of Latin tags only from reading uh, Edward Gibbon, but doesn't actually know Latin and tries to use it, is eventually going to screw up somewhere. Right. And she doesn't. So I would think that some of this was was fixed up by, you know, by her son who, who also edited it. But again, you know, she's clearly, you know, uh, more the, has more than a passing acquaintance with uh, all these storybooks and stuff because, like Faith said, she definitely writes in that way. Yeah. So her audience, that you know, as far as you know, we can trust her words, and she's she's writing to her children, like that's that's how she she addresses them over and over in the text, and then. Uh, but she's also writing for herself because, you know, as she says at the very beginning, like um, the nights are long after her husband dies yeah. and she she just uh, to, to keep from going crazy. She sits down and writes. And now clearly also um, because she's obsessed with what's going to happen to her kids. Are they going to fall into poverty or are they going to rise uh, to a to a to upper class, you know, she's worried about what's going to happen to them, especially the, 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 what is it? Four that are still not married. But as we learn through the reading her stories, she's also worried about the ones that are married. They're just as likely yeah. to, to fuck up. Yeah. Um, well, I, th- I think, you know, one of the reasons why it's so good and why you can read it 400 odd years later or close to 400 years after it was written, uh, or 300 years, I guess, is that, you know, instead of, I'm going to describe the position of the Jews in German society at this time and place, she's resolutely small-minded. Yeah. Uh, and as a result, you know, and face it, that's, you know, the stuff she's small-minded about are the things that don't change. You know, do I have enough money? Are my kids going to mess up? Uh Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. What am I going to do when my spouse dies? All that kind of stuff that doesn't change. How she still, you know, holds a grudge against the guy who screwed her and her husband over in business twenty years ago. Yeah, and yeah, then, that was actually one of my favorite. And then parts. she pretends it yeah. doesn't bother her, but it really, you know, uh, she writes ten pages about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but you know, you get, uh, you know, I think that's why it's so vivid. It's because also she, yeah. Go ahead, Wex. No, no, you go. Uh... Oh, I was just going to say, there's this one story um, that I found really fascinating. Um, I think it's in book two, 
where her one of her daughters um they're they're staying somewhere i forget where uh not they're not at home but they're off visiting somewhere as they often are going to various places to either attend a wedding or celebrate a holiday or do business in another town and so they're off somewhere or other and one of her daughters becomes ill and she has a, a bump i think oh and they think she's lump. got the plague and they think she has the plague and this busybody at the shul you know, in the women's section is like, that child has plague, get her out of here, you know, and sort of starts this hysteria and the community freaks out and and uh, Glickle is all, oh, I knew it was nothing all along, which I'm sure she was very concerned <laughs> that her daughter was actually sick. It wasn't plague, but just... She had a boil. Um, yeah, she had a boil, but just this idea that the entire position of the Jews in that town could be could be threatened right. by yeah. you know a child having a plague i mean it, it was it's just i found the whole thing very very fascinating and of course she doesn't actually explain it um to, in any great detail like what the actual threat is she just said they don't they want to make sure that nobody knows nobody knows that a jewish child has the plague um, well, first well obviously you know if they would either expel all the jews if they were lucky or kill them or kill them yeah so she but she doesn't uh, she doesn't ever sort of say what yeah. you know did this happen somewhere else? Like she doesn't actually go into any of that context. She just assumes, you know, it's very, very yeah. bad. Um, and it's, I just found it so fascinating. Um, the sort of the various reactions right down to like that. It was a busy body in shul who caused all the problems, which is again, you know, as Wex says, these are things we can still relate to. Yeah. That's definitely one of the other things uh, in addition to complaining about people who screwed her and her husband over out of money and worrying about her children uh, being idiots or not getting good marriages, there's um, uh, towns that are okay to live in as a Jew and towns that you don't want to get caught in at sundown to to mix a metaphor. You know, she, she is always yes. talking about how worried she is about her husband being in um, – in, uh, uh, um, oh, I'm forgetting the town now. Leipzig, Leipzig, yeah, Leipzig. She's she hates that her husband goes and spends time there because it's not a good place for the Jews, and she never right. says why. But uh, you know, she mentions that if they die there, um, that all of their money will be stolen. Right, that's one thing she mentions, and then the other thing that's a that's a constant background throughout the book that I found fascinating was how there was always a war. Some there was some war somewhere that was never like um, it was never the war. It was never yeah. an all cons- all consuming uh, fact of their lives. It was just that you know it was hard to travel because this king invaded this king's this other guy's territory, or, or you know we didn't want to we didn't want to uh, you know have the marriage this year because there was a war. Well, yeah. So this was. Uh during the time when the Swedes were still a major aggressive power uh, and, you know, were coming into Northern Europe, uh, you know, Greta Garbo and Queen Christine and all of that. Uh, And, yeah, no, there was always something. And, of course, there was no actual Germany. There were all these little German-speaking principalities and whatever. 
So it's like every five miles was owned by a different nobleman and was for all intents and purposes a different place. Uh, so if you go on Wikipedia, but, you can find a list of wars from yeah. 1500 to 1799. Yeah. And there's barely a year with no wars. And there are many years with five or six wars. Yeah, so that, that part was really interesting. Because that I think the climax of the book, as far as having a plot, was that, was it her youngest daughter's wedding? It was clearly the the biggest deal. And of course, she describes how much money they spent on everything for the mm. wedding. But they traveled, they traveled really far to go to the wedding. And there was a war on. And they, at first, they all got seasick on the yeah. boat. And then they had to get off the boat. And then they had to hire... Uh, yeah, they, they went to Holland, yeah, which you wouldn't think was such a major deal. <laughs> and then they had to hire but Yeah, a there soldier. was a war intervening. That I really enjoyed yeah, that um, entire section. Is that the place where she gets seasick? Yes. That made me hysterical, that thing about how she got she got seasick and her her husband told her to stay lying down and not to get up but she gets up to feed the baby and then she thinks she's gonna die and uh boy i've been there <laughs> <laughs> i really also enjoyed as far as uh being being connected to this uh extremely old dead writer um i don't think i've ever read such like well like such clearly explained examples of breastfeeding like oh. like what it what it takes and who does it and when it happens and i loved i i mean the, to me the whole like me, the book was uh was worth it all with the story about the time that she and her mother both had a baby at the same time oh which, yeah. which that's definitely the 17th century right you can't yeah. and so she's a young she's a teenage mom and her her middle-aged mom and they both have an infant and at one point in the night uh, she wakes up and she knows something is terribly wrong and she assumes the worst and she runs into the room where her mom is sleeping and uh, it and it turns out that her mom is breastfeeding her baby and, and that's why the nurse never brought her the baby. It's a mix-up. There's an infant mix-up. I really enjoyed that whole idea. Yeah, no, she's very good at... Uh disgusting physical ailments. I mean, when her husband is dying, uh, that whole section there about how yeah, his insides were all twisted up. Uh, and she actually says at some point, you know, what was supposed to come out of his bottom was coming out of his mouth. Uh, right. <laughs> like, that is fairly disgusting, yes. But yeah, well, I think you also you get a picture of how far away from so many basic processes we've got right. uh, in the past century or so that, you know, this kind of stuff, I don't think anybody liked it then, but it was kind of taken for granted. You got used to it. Uh, and, you know, it wasn't considered bad taste, I guess, to go on and on and on about it. Yeah, I love that part. That actually reminds me. There's a um, at one point there's a wedding, and uh, um, the dancers do the dance of death. And then my footnote tells me that the dance of death was extremely popular. I don't know anything about that. Yeah, uh, there's still uh, 
amongst some chassidim, they still do it, a tchias amesim, a revival, resurrection of the dead dance. Uh, so it's, it hasn't died out completely. Huh. But, yeah, that, again, uh, were you going to say something, Shane? Yeah. So it, uh, like, like it uh, comes up in the Dibuk and in various other... Yeah. Uh, as well. Yeah, the, the, the dance of death. Shane, are you still able to hear us? Yeah. I, I want to check in with you. Do you have anything else you want to contribute? Not especially. Yeah. <laughs> you, did you enjoy reading this book at all? It's not my favorite. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know, but this is show business. You have to pretend. <laughs> That's okay. Do you like this Not woman? in front of the customers. That was actually man. one of my questions I wanted to get to. Do we like Glickle? Yeah, one. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't think she's any less small mind or any more small minded than most people. She just had no qualms about displaying it. And I don't think she would have considered it being small-minded uh, quite often. You know, holding a grudge against somebody who screwed you over for 20 years. Well, who who amongst us can say they've not done that? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, I think, regrettably, it is not, you know, people who write about autobiography in the larger <laughs> literary world don't seem to have paid much attention to this. Uh, like to Glickle, to, to, to this book. Yeah. And I think in that sense, it's it's kind of a seminal document because we do know, you know, basically it really was written by the person who purported to have written it, uh, in all, you know, in, in all essentials. Uh, it's written by somebody who is also at a large, just at enough of a remove from the larger society uh, to be able to comment on a lot of things without actually having any stake in them. Because she was a woman? Uh, well, a woman and a Jew. Okay, right. Uh, and also, you know, just like the whole development of this, you know, I guess uh, fairly modern idea of the self and all. Uh which you don't see a lot of uh, earlier, you know, or too much earlier than this. And, you know, this is really one of, I think, you know, the main earlier sources for something like this. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure on the non-Jewish side, people would start or try to connect a lot of what's in there with, you know, uh, changes in the notion of individual reason because of, uh, you know, Martin Luther and the Reformation and all of that. Uh, you know, whether there's anything to that or not, I, I couldn't say. But, you know, what you do get is something that's also, she's not terribly concerned with making herself look any better than she is or too much better than she is. So you get a fairly I mean, so, 
Yeah. Some of it, like the stories that she throws in and all that, it, it starts out, it feels like, I mean, never having read a, a, a Musser text, but uh, but there seems to be a heavy Musser component uh, to some of it, or maybe that's just typical of uh, Senarena and uh, 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 such things. But, you know, she seems, she's got uh, her concerns about money and the children and all that, but she's also trying to, to uh, uh, get herself to look at the, the, the good side of things or to find, in fact, you know, with, with some of the stories where she's talking about rewards in the world to come, it seemed almost vaguely, you should forgive me, Christian to me. Uh, I don't know how typical that is of other Jewish literature, but it seemed uh, uh, different from most of what I've ever read to me. Uh, uh, yeah. uh, I mean, a lot of these, sort, you know, exemplar, uh, things like that bounced back and forth. You know, they, they could be used by members of either faith community uh, to prove uh-huh. pretty much the same point. And I think there's a fair bit of interchange yeah. uh, going on there. But it's also, you know, what's nice is she says explicitly at one point, I'm putting all these stories in so that this won't get too dull. Uh, and I so just... there'll be something, you know, to, to hold your interest what I found interesting about that is she, so she, there's a lot of stories that she quotes, like she's retelling stories that she's read somewhere. And she, yeah, as you say, she's a tremendous reader. So she's very knowledgeable about that particular kind of literature. And so she rewrites these stories in ways that make sense when she's reflecting on her own life. But then when she writes the stories of her own life, oftentimes they become that kind of story. They become yeah. that kind of um, you know, how you infer um, ethical conduct or, you know, how you understand, how you make meaning of stories that are actually this chaotic life. Um, so she sort of is contributing in a way to basically probably the only kind of literature she actually reads. Yeah, and I felt like that really came to a head right at the the last thing she writes about, the last story she wrote about is from her own life. Alexander. Oh no, no. Um the oh, the story of the, the uh, of the with of the, the stuff and the the signs in the sky. No, well right end. before that cuz that was just a sentence. The the story about the women getting trampled in in the in the synagogue. Right. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it really comes together sort of it, she, it it's it's the first time maybe it was just cuz it was late at night when I read it, but it really, um, I really, it, I thought it came together in that way where the, the, where the well, the tales, and her own uh, life sort of uh, were whipped into that kind of meaning that Faith was just referencing, um, where these women were trampled, uh, they 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 were all praying together, and they yeah. they thought they heard a noise that meant that the building was collapsing. And so everybody, all the men yelled to the women, get out of the building. And all the women right. thought the men uh, were rioting. So there was a mysterious uh, riot, and apparently six women were were uh, trampled to death on the stairwell. It was quite mm. a yeah, quite a big to-do. And she sort of writes about it. Um, she gives it meaning. Although what the, what the lesson is is not entirely clear. It might be don't panic. 
Uh, always a good one. Uh, yeah, the she. I'm, I'm trying. It's like a couple of months since I, I looked at this. Uh, does she give any? Because quite often, you know, they, uh, people would try and find. Okay, this terrible thing happened. It must be because of X, Y, or Z that we have done. Yes, she yeah. says it's and because talking of- in shul was always a big one. <laughs> uh, What's that, Faith? Doesn't she say um, that it, it happened because uh, there had been a fight in the synagogue earlier and or on some previous occasion? And that's why this terrible thing had happened to them. And in the fight, let me see if I can find it. Um, it's right at the end, right? Yep, it's the um, last few pages. So I'm looking at the, at the English. Uh, um, here, here, we can't make we can't find any other reason for this having happened than our own sins. You see that all this, she couldn't possibly have understood this, uh, this Hebrew. Uh, so, yeah. Um, woe to us uh, and how our souls, uh, you know, have been, have been tormented. That we must hear such, you know, we must hear of such things. Uh, okay, so here I've got it in the okay. English. Um, so she's talking about people, something that oh, happened. Yeah, people had, yeah, on Simchas and interrupted the. Uh, no, it's not Simchas Torah. Uh, Shavuos. Oh, okay. God, you know, chose us from all peoples and languages and stuff. And now, yeah. So, yeah, there was, uh, whatever, the dis- a, a dispute on, on Simchas Torah. Which is pretty weird anyway, just because Simcha's tire, everybody is generally drunk and misbehaving. So one of the things so one of the things that happens in this dispute, apparently, is that the the women had a brawl. Oh. Which I, I love the idea of. And uh, yeah. uh, and they ended up tearing the head coverings from each other's heads so that they were bareheaded in synagogue. So there you go. That is the reason why it happened. Mm-hmm. Now you know. Yeah, and that all that all grows out of talking during the davening. Yeah, uh, they were fighting. <laughs> I sort of took it as that. Um... Well, f- fights in synagogues are—I mean, physical fights are not uncommon, or didn't used to be. Uh, there, there was a level of kind of day-to-day violence and ill breeding that's been to a large degree, I think, written out of a lot of the histories. But that, you know, people, obviously, it doesn't look good. Uh, but there was a fair bit of that. And I mean, right. I've, I've certainly seen it. So. And I, I took some of that to be what, what Faith was referencing earlier, the whole um, a sort of background of, of European paranoia among Jews, that when, you know, the, the, the same way that they... They took this child and forced a child to live in in um, in forced uh, not exile. The, what's the word when it's um, 
a sickness. Uh, right. That word. Quarantine. Quarantine. They Thank forced you. they forced a quarantine on this poor child because of paranoia that that anti-Semitism would would bring would bring uh, bad luck down on everybody and worse than bad luck violence. Well, also, there, there, there was also paranoia about like you know having the plague. Yes, but <laughs> right. they, but it it was kind of clear that they were worried that it would that they'd be blamed for the plague. It she references that like it's not just it that they were worried about getting sick; they were worried about what the boss was going to say, the the prince or whoever it was that ran the town. Well, Right. That he, you know, um, but I kind of I took that that sort of background of anti-Semitism to be one of the causes behind the this this little riot at the end where seven women die on the stairwell. Yeah. Um, um. But maybe that was just that was just me. But it certainly comes up in other sections of the book where um uh the 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 general hostility towards jews which is not uh it's not in the foreground like it's not like it drives her crazy and she's always talking about it and you no know. her children drive her crazy yeah <laughs> and anti-semitism tries- is just the way it is yeah that's taken for granted uh but it, it doesn't even seem all that horrendous at this time period at least like i mean i guess it, it just is what it is Right. Uh, they live where they can live. They do business where they can do business. Yeah. They don't. They they try to avoid uh, the wrong parts of the country. I guess. I mean, she talks a little yeah, bit about they're... what cities they're allowed to live in. Uh, yeah, you know, there's, but that was that sort of thing was old by then. You know that that would that had been going on for generations. Right. Oh, and then so I wonder about so apparently according to my uh according to the introduction of my translation by Beth Zion Abrahams, um the book was published publicly for the first time in at the turn of the century, the turn of the 20th century in the 18 the late 1890s. And I was wondering Yeah, roughly. I was yeah. wondering if that had any significance. What why why were why was this book made public? At that uh, point, for Kaufman, for Jews in Germany, uh, well, no, nobody outside of the family knew about it. It wasn't like there's this thing that we haven't bothered to translate or that we're keeping secret. Uh, Kaufman, uh, the the man that edited it and published it f- at first in Yiddish, uh, had found it, as it were. Uh, before that, nobody outside of, you know, Glickel's descendants knew that this thing was around. But and I do by, think... By the 1890s, they probably couldn't have read it. Uh, they were a fairly, uh, or many of them, you know, were pretty assimilated as far as German culture went. And, they, you know, I don't know if they could have even read the Olive Base. You know, somebody like Bertha Poppenheim. Uh, so, you know, that that's why it hadn't come out before that, is nobody knew it, nobody knew it was there. It's kind of like, you know, Beowulf was discovered in 1839 uh, by accident, you know, somebody rummaging around in the British Museum. It's, well, that's a really interesting parallel because I think Glickel sort of, yeah, I think it was sort of 
by happenstance that she appeared when she did publicly. Um, but yeah. I think there's no doubt that it really influenced Yiddish literature. Um, first of all, because Yiddish writers were looking for a history and to have, you know, to have found this text that was so old, uh, I think in some ways was, you know, you know, was significant. And she sort of became a kind of figure that a lot of the women writers could point to as a predecessor. Uh, yeah. And of course, having your, having, you know, working inside a tradition, um, you know, is, is very much a part of how Yiddish literature formed oh, its own sure. idea of itself. You know, uh, Ida Kaminska, Ida Kaminska, the famous Yiddish uh, uh, actress and director, you know, made a play out of it. Really? It was uh, produced, I think. I'm not sure if it was the 20s or 30s. What do you suppose the plot was of this play? I was involved a few child. The child gets sick, then the child fails to get married, the child doesn't do well at business. There's a lot of drama in there, you know. (laughs) There is. It's basically every other Yiddish play ever written. Uh, (laughs) You know, with the ungrateful children and the They break their mother's heart, yeah. And now, now the, you know, Goyim are going to come and kill somebody. It's, it's all Yiddish drama. That's a good point. Uh, I guess 15, 20 years ago, I was involved uh, just on a textual level, but with a theatrical production that Adrian Cooper and Frank London and Jenny Romaine did mm. uh, from Glickle. Uh, then I, I wrote some of the Yiddish songs for it. Uh and you know you you can make it work. Uh, there are weddings, funerals. Yeah, there's all this stuff, <laughs> and you know weird superstitions oh, and weird superstition. Synagogues, you know where you know where uh, it looks like the synagogue is is about to collapse and six people are trampled to death. You know this all this all works well. That's on true. <laughs> I really enjoyed the ghost stories. They I connected with them. I really liked mm-hmm. the. The time, you know, I don't, I don't think I have to describe each ghost story in detail. And I also really loved. Um, at one point, she just like, and now, uh, probably my daughters, but maybe also my sons. Like, listen up, if you're a pregnant lady and you have a craving for something specific, don't deny that craving. Because let I mean, me tell you the story I of the time that, yeah. that I wanted, and I had to go uh, look up that fruit. I had no idea what that fruit was. This sour fruit. That apparently oh, is uh, not around anymore. Mispond. A what? Mispond. Meddlers, they're called a meddler. in English. But yeah, she had she had a craving for meddlers. Get all my... and, yeah, and then she so... realized that getting a meddler would save the life of her little sick uh, newborn. And it worked. The the sour juice <clears throat> of the meddler. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that was really wonderful. Again, like only a mom, right, would write that story. Right. Uh a mom of 13 children. Yeah. Was it 13 or 12? I can't, I can't remember now. I thought it was 12. Maybe it was only 12. I think um, one dies as an infant and one dies as a three-year-old and then some of the other yeah, ones uh, die as yeah, adults. Yeah, a few of them die. I think, yeah, I think what? I'm trying to remember the count as to how many live to adulthood. Yeah. What and then I- even among those, uh, 
you know, like offhand, I can remember one of her sons dies at 24. Right. Well, the, the, the guy uh, who messed up a business and she, had yeah, the guy that messed up all the businesses. Uh, later. So they tended not to have, I just, I realized what was happening in this book early on when she spent like five pages talking about one of the first people that screwed over her husband in business. And then she spent half a page talking about the first baby that died. It's like, okay. <laughs> the baby dying is remember she's trying to write to uh ease her pain right uh you know the the dead baby is not really going to help her feel better uh and there's not much to you know there's not a lot to say but the guy that Uh, the guy that her 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 husband's business partner who didn't fulfill his obligations that's that that made her feel better she was probably angry at that too maybe ah, she was doing a bit of a purge that. there yeah it was a bit of an emotional purge yeah, I that, think. yeah that is yeah exactly also uh, i really enjoyed how half the time she was complaining about all these people because there's a dozen people that don't uh fulfill their obligations that lie that don't pay their debts but um more more often than not she says something nice about them Huh, that's interesting. Isn't there one where they start talking in French or something, not knowing that one of her kids can well, speak French or something? And well, so they, they reveal yeah. that they're going to do something and then the, the child yes. hears it. Or that was actually like her, that. I think. That was her when she was a kid. Oh, that was her. She, that was her when she was a kid. Yes. That's what's so weird. And that's one of the things is she never, except for things like, like that, where, yeah, okay, nobody would expect her to understand French. There's, they just seem to have been able to speak everything. Right. Yeah. If you know what I mean. Like they, she never distinguishes. And then we said to, you know, the innkeeper, blah, 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 blah. And of course it's in the same Yiddish as everything else in the book. She's obviously not speaking to the innkeeper in Yiddish. Uh, You know, to some degree, there's a question of, and she never says like, we spoke Yiddish so they wouldn't understand. Uh, to what degree she saw her language as separate from German. Mm. That's a good Which question. Which is not something she ever talks about directly. No. But it's like later at the end of the book when she remarries, you know, to also to a hapless bum. Bad uh, move. That was a bad mistake. I, I saw that one coming a mile. <laughs> like, Don't marry this dude. But then she says wonderful things about him, even though clearly he was a a deadbeat. Well, she says, well that's her duty. Well, for a while, she says horrible things about him and yeah. what a what a schlemiel he was and how incompetent in business and everything else. Uh, but he was but, a big you know, deal. He, he we have to ran. mention he also was a big deal, and then it turned out he didn't know what he was. They, he was at the he was at the precipice of failure, but he he seemed like yeah. the most important banker in all of the in the town where he was from. Yeah, in France. And uh, the one thing it did though for me was uh, his name. He's called Svi or Hirsch, but in French his name was Surf. Hmm. You know, he was from uh, he was from France. See, I finally realized where Bennett Surf from Random House got his name. Oh. Is somewhere way back, it must have been Hirsch. And I think they were from Alsace. I think his family was Alsatian. So, you know, where they bounce back and forth between German and yeah. French. 
So from her, she must have become surf. So I, the I, idea that surf is like some sort of Jewish name in parts of France, uh, I just find like sort of cute. Uh, so I, I need I need to mention that that story of uh, being a little a, a girl sitting there innocently and overhearing a conversation between two ne'er do wells that are speaking a different language. That actually, mm-hmm. um, my grandma has the same story. Of you know of knowing Hungarian and catching two guys mm. talking behind some you know her father's back about you know their their plan to do him ill. I don't think it was as right. violent, but what what why that is fascinating to me is because the whole the, one of the reasons I liked this book at all is that I wish my grandma had written a book right <laughs> to tell me everything, uh-huh. and I think that that's not mm. an uncommon wish. Maybe not just with Jews, but also uh, with everybody. And so, someone—the fact that someone's grandma did sit down and write an entire book about you know everything she could remember about growing up, and you know all the people that her husband did business with, and all the different things that happened, you know, at this wedding and and that few. Yeah. You know, I really, I'm really. That's I. That's one of the reasons I did like this book, this weirdo book. Yeah, well, the, well, the whole grandmother thing. I mean, it's interesting. One of the other big pieces of Jewish literature uh, like that uh, was published in German. Uh, I think just before, just after World War One, and was called "Memoirs of a Grandmother" by a woman named Pauline Wengeroff, who had also she lived, you know, quite a long time. She'd been born in Russia, in the Pale of Settlement, and ended up in Germany, and just set down all these memories and all the things that happened to her. I mean, there's recipes in there Mm. and stuff, you know, all kinds of stuff. Uh, Glickle didn't cook. You don't get any recipes. Yeah, uh, Glickle is too rich to cook. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think she did her own cooking. I don't know if Paulina Vengeroff did either. She she did pretty well for herself, or her husband did. But she talks about her grandmother and how her grandmother used to make ginger cookies and stuff when she was a little girl. So, you know, you're dealing with recipes that I guess her grandmother probably learned in her own youth, uh, which probably would have been in the 18th century sometime. So yeah, the the grandmother memoir thing is uh, is a definite thing, you know. Again, we taught you know the the Yiddish for for made up stories or bullshit, you know, that started off as bovamaisa became a bovamaisa, you know, a story that your grandmother tells. Uh, so you know that that connection is never obviously was there to start with. I'm really glad, Eric, that you ended up liking the book. Yeah, me too. I'm really, gl- I'm really glad you ended yeah. up liking Glickle. I mean, I think Glickle is like very much like a lot of, uh, a lot of women that I've studied. Um, you know, I I do have this degree in undergraduate degree in women's studies, and um, I usually have ended up studying, you know, quite a few women from different walks of life in history, and I always find myself terribly attracted to the ones that I would actually hate being in the same room with 
Um, and I think Glickle might be in that category. Uh, she seems like she was, you know, she was a bit of a piece of work. I think she had a very distinct idea about exactly how you should behave and um, all well, those things. It's, yeah. It's the godfather except with a booba. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's, you don't trust anybody outside of your, well, with Glickle as, as, as Marlon Brando. Uh, you know, you don't trust anybody outside of your immediate family. Uh, you know, and even I hate them, to say this, Lahavdil, she's Donald. You know, she could be Donald Trump too. Uh, but you know, it's that everybody outside of the family is basically your enemy until they prove otherwise, and even then, it's probably only temporary. Yeah. Uh, yeah, she definitely. And that's pretty much. How she behaves. Yeah, she definitely has, you know, quite a few chips on her shoulder. But, uh, but I did really, well, of, I do really think she's uh, she's a great source, and it's so intimate and lively. I just, yeah. And again, you know, I think she had the big problem of being smarter, at least in business, than most of the people around her. Yeah. And because she is a woman, at some point or other, she loses control. Yeah. You know, she should she should never have got married again. Yeah. Uh, Although her lesson she takes away is that she should have gotten married earlier to the better ones. Yeah. To, but, the, to the good ones. Yeah. yeah. But you're, yeah, she probably would have found out that those guys weren't so great either. Yeah. Yeah. She never says yeah, well, anything bad about her husband. No, she clearly liked. Her. I mean, she seems to have liked her husband. Yeah. The only thing she says bad about him is that he shouldn't go out so much. He should stay home. But, you know, he's out, he's out there working. Now, I, I think she, uh, I mean, she seemed genuinely to have, uh, you know, to have really loved her husband. Uh, yeah, but sorry. that was it. Uh, that, yeah. that, that was it, I think. Uh, and some of her in-laws get nothing but beautiful. beautiful yeah, women. but they lived far, they lived far away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, her husband's family in Hamel in Hamlin. Uh, she seems to have liked quite a lot. Uh, I've been to Hamlin, driven through it. Yeah, it's uh, not much of a place even today. It's not very big. Yeah, she calls it shabby. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I just noticed. I, I was more impressed by how how small it was, you know, I guess because of the, the Robert Browning poem, you think that this is a, like a sort of major place that you just didn't know about. Uh, but it's not. No. <laughs> no. It's, uh, it's on the road between Bad Piermont and, uh, and Hanover. Woohoo! <laughs> 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 uh, Well, that's it for this episode of Yiddish Book Club. My name is Eric Klein. My sincere thanks to my friends and co-hosts and co-producers of this project, Michael Wex, Faith Jones, and Shane Baker. You can listen to previous episodes of Yiddish Book Club on the website yiddishbookclub.com. You could subscribe to the podcast wherever you subscribe to podcasts, but because uh, we put them out 
at a real book reader's pace. And so perhaps the best place to to listen to old episodes is that website, again, yiddishbookclub.com. If you enjoyed what you heard or have any feedback for me at all, you can find uh, contact information for me on that website. I'd love to hear from you. This is a real uh, labor of love, this podcast. And so whatever your thoughts are at this point after listening to the hour program, um, it would mean the world to me to, uh, to have you share. And that's all I have to say. Thank you so much. A happy reading. And uh, thanks for listening.